it's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on Cable. Bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. A young woman who's been unlucky in love discovers her perfect match as a professional hitman in Mr. Right, starring Anna Kendrick, Sam Rockwell, and Tim Roth. That's now playing on demand. Also playing on demand is The Invitation, a haunting thriller about a man who attends a dinner party at his former house and begins to believe his ex-wife and her new husband have disturbing plans awaiting the guests. The latest independent films are ready when you are with Movies on Demand on cable. The Art House is now in your house. From New York City, this is Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. And on this episode of Film Spotting SVU, we'll be discussing Ho Shao Shen's meditative martial arts movie, The Assassin. Allison, let's take a moment to stare at each other meaningfully in silence while acknowledging our fraught pasts and politically and socially complicated present. That was very powerful. Podcasting magic. In honor of the assassin, we were going to talk about movies about assassins and all their inevitable quirks and codes and lonely lives. Doesn't that sound like a good idea, Matt? It does. That's such a good idea that we've actually already done it. Oh. Yeah, back when we filled in on the main Film Spotting podcast on episode number 362, in which we also discussed Columbiana. Oh, the, what a great masterpiece. Yeah, remember that, Columbiana? Um, so you can check that out in the archives. And otherwise, you're going to hear us recommend some martial arts movies which was a really fun topic to take on Mm -hmm. but first up is opening break the segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor movies on demand on cable in which we spotlight a few notable films that were new on demand on cable matt what are our picks this time well we've got some intriguing sounding movies this first one well it's not colombiana but it sounds kind of close it's colonia 
slightly mm. similar sounding title. This will be available on VOD starting on April 15th. And the trailer for this one looks really intriguing. It's based on a true story, and it seems like a, a very interesting story. I'll read you the plot description. Set in 1973, a young couple becomes entangled in a Chilean military coup at a time when there is much protest on the streets against General Pinochet. When Daniel is abducted by Pinochet's secret police, Lena tries to find and save her husband. She tracks him to a sealed-off village, which presents itself as a charitable mission run by a lay preacher, but is, in fact, a place from which no one has ever escaped. Lena decides to join this cult to attempt to rescue her husband. I came to Chile around four months ago, and it has become my country. But what we need in this country is solidarity. Venceremos! Venceremos! Hey! <laughs> Give me the camera. The camera's mine now. Thank you. Hello? What? There's been a military coup. We have to go. Where are we gonna go? I don't know. Just out. A lot going on there. Interesting. And then you add in the cast, which is Emma Watson and Daniel Bruhl, which is an intriguing combination. Those are the two main stars. So. Not a movie I'd heard a lot about, but looking at it, and Michael Nyquist is in it as well. I think he is the the cult leader. Oh, and based, he's pretty creepy. He's sometimes. pretty creepy. Yeah, so good casting there. Good casting all around, and an intriguing real life story. So I'm interested in checking that one out. That's Colonia, and it'll be available on VOD on April 15th. Our next pick uh, on VOD is available now, and this is another one with a, a hard to resist premise and trailer. It's called One More Time. It's directed by Robert Edwards, and the plot description is an aspiring rocker, played by Amber Heard, is forced to move in with her father. Care to guess who her father is played by? I believe that would be Christopher Walken. That is correct, <laughs> because that is a family that makes sense. Uh, he is a famous singer attempting a comeback. Tensions rise, but their lives change forever. So it's sort of a family drama set against the music industry and... The trailer for this looks incredible with Christopher Walken singing. He pronounces the name Flaming Lips as <laughs> the Flaming Lips. And then Amber Heard corrects him. And she's like, Dad, no, it's the Flaming Lips. And he's like, whatever, it's the Flaming Lips. I'm sold right there. I'm all the way in. I've already I've rented it on VOD. I bought the DVD. I own stock in the distribution company. I'm all the way in. That's one more time. And that's uh, already available now on VOD. Finally, one more uh, interesting-sounding movie. This one is called Sky, available on April 15th on VOD. This film played at the Toronto Film Fest. I'll read you the plot description. A French woman finds liberation in the dusty highways, wide-open spaces, and smoky bar rooms of the American West in this captivating road movie. Diane Kruger stars as the Parisian Romy who, while on vacation in California, breaks things off once and for all with her boorish husband in a dramatic fight. A free woman in a strange land, Romy embarks on a life-changing trip through the desert that bring her in t brings her in touch with strangers who impact her life in various ways. And then the cast also includes Joshua Jackson, Lena Dunham, and Norman Reedus. So an intriguing uh, premise, intriguing combination of actors there. I didn't hear much about this one at Toronto, 
But Toronto is such a big festival. It's very easy for little movies like this to fall under the radar. So that is Sky, just the word Sky, available on VOD on April 15th. Here on Film Spotting SVU, we let you choose our main review by voting on one of three options, all streaming or available for rent. And this time we gave you Ho Xiao Shen's Period Martial Arts from The Assassin, which is on Netflix. Hush, the new thriller from Oculus director Mike Flanagan, which went straight to Netflix after premiering at South by Southwest this year. And The Invitation, Karen Kusama's indie thriller set during a dinner party in the Hollywood Hills, which is now in limited release and available for rent. And though The Invitation put up a bit of a fight, The Assassin ultimately won with nearly half the vote. The Assassin is the first film in eight years from Ho Shen, who is arguably Taiwan's greatest living director and certainly one of the great auteurs on the festival circuit. Ho's work is known for beautiful compositions, long takes, and deliberate pacing, but subject-wise, it's roamed widely from The Puppet Master, which is set during Japan-occupied Taiwan in World War II, to Millennium Mambo, which is about a bar hostess in Taipei in 2001, to uh, Flight of the Red Balloon, which was his previous film, which is set in Paris and stars Juliette Binoche. The Assassin is Ho's first wuxia film. It's part of that Chinese period martial arts saga tradition. Though to describe it as a martial arts movie, while not untrue, isn't necessarily the best way to classify it. The fighting, while present, isn't the focus. It's just another aspect of the power struggles and intrigue going on in the period the film is set, which is 8th century China. Uh, it's also set in a province called Weibo, uh, where... The, the leaders are agitating against imperial rule uh, as the Tang Dynasty is in its last days. Um, the plot, okay, the plot can get a bit okay. Good luck. Yes, even on second viewing, and this was my second viewing, it involves a young woman named Yin Yang, who is played by Ho's most frequently used lead actress, Xu Qi, who returns home after a decade away. When she was a girl, her parents put her in the care of a Taoist nun named Jia Xin, who also happens to be head of a group of highly trained assassins, as sometimes happens, who target corrupt officials and people who might destabilize the central government. Yin Yang becomes one of those fighters, but when she spares a target after seeing him with his son, Justin gives her the most difficult task she can think of, which is to go home and to kill Jian, who is played by Chang Chen, and who is Yin Yang's cousin, childhood playmate, and former fiance, now Lord of Weibo. Matt, I think it's fair to say that the palace intrigues that go on during the film, which involve a pregnant concubine, a sorcerer, an advisor being banished to a far-off post for saying something the Lord didn't like, an earlier generation of twin princesses, and another female assassin in a gold mask, the identity of whom I understood only after reading an interview with Ho in Film Comet, in which he's asked outright about it. Yeah. Um, none of these things are easy to follow. No. My question for you is, yes. does it matter in terms of the film resonating with you? Mm. Uh, that's a good question. I would say, it, 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 yes, to an extent. I mean, it's I, I, it's a gorgeous movie, no matter what's going on in it, which I couldn't tell you some of the time. And uh, I, this was my second viewing as well. 
And I expected, well, it's my second viewing, and I was looking forward to seeing it again. The first time I saw it was at Fantastic Fest, which is both a very good place to see this movie and also not the best place to see this movie because you're seeing it with a bunch of like-minded uh, fans of international genre cinema. But you're also drinking, and it, you might be seeing this movie in the middle of like a five-movie day, and most of the other movies are a little more bombastic there. So it, it's very subdued and quiet and still, and not – if you just hear, well, it's a, it's a wuxia movie – uh, an art house wuxia movie, you still think maybe you probably think more like Crouching Tiger, which is still it's beautiful, or the Grandmaster, or the Grandmaster, yeah. which is even artsier than your typical uh, you know kind of martial arts movie, but still I think delivers more of what you expect from that genre than than this does. So this is my second viewing, and I thought I would understand it better, and I almost felt like I understood it worse. I don't think this movie is it really holds up to a Netflix viewing. We're reviewing it you know, on Netflix, and this is not a movie that I would really recommend people watch at home. I mean, its primary pleasure is visual and getting like kind of lost in this world. And you will get lost because, I mean, maybe I'm just stupid, but it doesn't sound like it because you felt the same way. Like, there are things about this movie that I just still don't understand after two viewings. But it is so beautiful that you really don't mind kind of just kind of uh, embracing the mystery, embracing the mystery and – kind of just giving yourself over to the movie. But that is something that I feel is much harder to do at home than it was in a movie theater where I – in the movie theater, I was sort of delightfully perplexed. At home, I was a little more frustrated at times. And maybe that's just because I'm a, the father of a three-month-old. And this is not the kind of movie I would recommend to the, the, the parent of a three-month-old who's sleep-deprived. It is very slow and deliberate and confusing at times, and uh, its pleasures are not necessarily those that a sleep-deprived parent would necessarily enjoy. I-, I was curious how you would feel like on second viewing. Did you feel like you got a lot more out of it? Because I didn't, really. Well, so I saw it for the first time at Cannes, okay. which is... It, a, a, a festival, but a very different festival. Right. but it's also sometimes a difficult place to see a movie because you see a lot of movies, Absolutely. and the schedule is such that... At a certain point during the festival, you will fall asleep during a world-class movie. Right. And, and this is an easy to movie to fall asleep right. to. And it has nothing to do necessarily with the quality of the movie. Yes. Um, I did not fall asleep during this movie at Cannes, but I definitely I, – I don't think that I was in a good place to follow it uh, you know, the way I could. So I, I will say, before I went and rewatched this – I like read up on it like I'm stu- I was studying for a test. Yeah, like, I read up. I on did Tang too. Dynasty it history. Didn't help. <laughs> I read up on like someone wrote a cheat sheet. I saw that too. I, yes, I read that. Up Weirdly on that. less helpful than I expected it yeah. to be. and I, I I felt like I did understand it better, and right. I felt like I liked it a bit more. Mm-hmm. But I still feel like this movie it holds you at a remove. In ways that are almost perverse. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's clearly doesn't want to be lucid in terms of the plot. Right. And it also, I mean, it's set in aristocratic 8th century China. As far as I can tell, is like very careful about period details, which also means that it's a very distant kind of society. And like it's a distant p- period in history that I still only understand the rough outlines of. Yeah. It does a lot to make it so that you don't understand what's going on in the heads of the characters, particularly the main character. Right. And I feel like I understand more about the emotions going on in retrospect. Mm -hmm. But I don't I wouldn't have gotten them from the movie by itself. Yeah. You know, like there are multiple things like 
I'm not going to call this a spoiler because I don't think it's even clear from the movie unless <laughs> you look at who the credits are listed. But like the woman in the gold mask, yeah. who is this female assassin who appears in like two scenes. Right. One scene Out of she, nowhere. Yes. One scene, she's just, just in the woods. And another scene, she has a fight with the main character, with right. Yang, uh, in which her, her mask gets sliced off. We don't see her face when her mask gets sliced off. Um, do you know who she is? I read one review that seemed demonstrative as to who it was and i was like oh that's who it was right so it is uh it is the wife of yeah the guy that, uh, of of chang chang's character who that uh, the lord of the kill. of yes. the province and like i read up on ho Shen's answer to this he yes. was saying basically that he combined two people in the story that this was based on okay uh, so that he saw this woman as being like also a martial arts master uh, but who was kind of working against her husband in a bit because she, right, she had been like a general's daughter and married into the family. And she was allied with the sorcerer who we see at one point cast a spell on a concubine. And that you can't see my my sort of like my agog look at Allison as she's describing all these things to me. Well, I don't think they're they're that clear in the movie. No. And but I think thematically it raises this interesting idea about oh, is this like, this is kind of like her alt self, right? Mm. Like that that you have this 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 character who was like trained and became this kung fu master and then, but also is outside, right? Is like, has been taken outside of the system into which she was born. Yeah. And there's this almost like alt version of her who is operating from within this aristocracy. It also makes the movie more like a superhero movie, which is kind of a vibe I got already with this assassin character who has these almost mythic powers, goes home as her true self, and then is, but is also kind of slinking around in the shadows. It's scary. Like, yeah. She's scary too. Everyone understands. There's kind of a Batman vibe to her. The yes. way she she's like, literally in some scenes is like hiding in like a corner of the ceiling. And, like, and listening yeah. and watching, yeah, which is cool. But I, you know, it's like I, I you could have the way you're describing these things, you could have like kind of turned more into that, right? In the same way that uh, the actress who plays the princess who was going to arrange this marriage, who is, dies before the movie starts, right? We see her in a flashback, though I don't think you understand that that's her for a long time, right? She's like playing a zither. Um, and telling oh, the story. Oh, yes. Okay. You don't understand. I At least I certainly didn't understand didn't that that either. was her. And then she is also the actress who plays the nun who mm-hmm. is Yin Yang's like, master uh, yes. pr- teacher and all of that. They're like twin sisters. It isn't that something I got until also I read up. So I feel like there are lots of kind of, in retrospect, a lot of themes about like doubling and a lot of themes about kind of who has power. Yeah. Right? Because yeah. in the very end, she actually, like, Inyang is the only person to have power in that she gets to walk away. Mm-hmm. Whereas everyone else is essentially trapped in their prescribed role. Right. It's, I mean, you have to almost, like, sift for these things, though. I yeah. Think, in the movie. And now, but is are you saying that's a strength or or not? No, I th- it's something that I found frustrating. frustrating. Because I think yeah. that that they are they are they are themes that when you kind of tug them out are feel, do feel profound in the context of the movie but i i don't think that you should have to have a study guide to kind of understand yeah, them yeah i've and i i that's the way i feel too and um i was you know afterwards cuz again it is a movie that you sit there and i felt more this way when i saw it in the theater where i was completely perplexed but i was i was sort of enchanted by the imagery and the just the the atmosphere that it conjures less so at home but I walked out sort of like, what happened in that movie? I couldn't have told you if my life depended on it. But I, I, I really liked 
what A.O. Scott wrote about the movie in his review in the New York Times. He says, The assassin offers subdued and partial delights. It reminds you of the sublime and enigmatic power of cinematic images without quite supplying the grandeur of mystery. Uh, Mr. Ho rejects some of the traditional satisfactions of the wuxia genre without offering much in their place. The film is intriguing but ultimately opaque, a lovely inert object that offers, in the name of movie love, an escape from so much that is vital and interesting about movies. And I couldn't really think of a better way to put some of that stuff than he did. Yeah, it's funny. So I wrestled with this a lot. I mean, it is, I don't think we've gone into this enough, but it is like an extraordinarily beautiful movie. Gorgeous. Like every frame. There's one frame where like a, a not like meaningless character like looks out over a balcony and, and then like walks away and it holds on like this balcony for a second just so you can admire the like beautiful composition of its like swoop through the frame. And there are, are sequences like that where these rooms filled with brocade are like stunning, you know, and these yeah. landscapes with like the mist drifting over them or the clouds behind the, the opening trees. sequences in black and white. It's like a flashback and just the one character is in black and one character is in white and just the contrast between the two. And the it's like the blackest black and the whitest white you have ever seen in a movie. It's like pure concentrated color. It's gorgeous. And I mean, there's always something to that, to the value of that. But I, this is a movie about a main character who's this very tragic figure. And I don't think that you kind of understand how tragic she is until you really, I think, kind of like parse out her circumstances right. fully. Right. Which is like she had this broken engagement. She was sent away because she like basically acted out against the person that the man she was supposed to marry was then assigned to assigned to marry in her someone place. else yeah and like and and then now you know and has led this very difficult life and then has and i think that little of that comes through in part because the movie doesn't want you it's not really that interested in it, it. doesn't even it doesn't go out of its way to make you understand even who the characters are right right away. no and i've i've never had a trouble you know i mean his movies have never been ones that have i would say make things too easy on audiences, but that's never been a problem for me before. Yeah. I mean, I he made this kind of triptych three times uh, that I love, that I really adore. That like it's it's and Shu Chi and Chang Chen are the stars of that movie, mm-hmm. and they play lovers in three different periods in Taiwan. Mm-hmm. And the middle the middle story, which is the one that I think the people have the most trouble with or love the most, is set I think in 1911, and is silent with intertitles. So. You'll have the dialogue, and then you'll have, they'll have the dialogue on cards in between each scene. And uh, Shu Chi plays a courtesan, and she's like hoping that her lover will like basically marry her and, t- and like help her escape. And I think that it would be very easy for that to seem like just totally distant because of like the the form and because of how and how remote it was historically mm-hmm. and just in terms of like the world it's describing. And I cried during it because right. I thought it was so. It was so, like, the subdued emotions were also so powerful. And I didn't feel that way here. Like, I didn't feel like I had a good handle on the emotional depths of it, of these characters at all. And it's a strange mixture because it's a movie of a lot of stillness and silence. Like, literal, like, there are scenes where you're just watching and all you hear is, like, the wind blowing through trees. 
And yet there are other times where people are talking and talking and talking and talking, and you it's very hard to fully understand because it's all about the political machinations and these alliances between characters that, have you, as you've said, we barely sort of understand exactly the relationships between them. So it's this weird mix of, of stillness and silence and then talking where a lot of talking, a lot of dialogue in certain scenes where you're just like, wait, what? Who? And you're – you're playing catch up the whole time. On the other hand, I find it very interesting as an experiment in terms of like the more martial arts side of things where, you know, making a martial arts movie like to strip the action out of an action movie is something I find very interesting. Like there's something really appealing about the like the idea of this movie to me where you take something that's always so propulsive and energetic and you make it about stillness and silence and have it be these kind of eruptions I think is very interesting and appealing. And even the way that, again, like getting back to the sound, you know, you think of action movies, they're always about soundtracks and the, you know, exciting score or exciting rock music or whatever it is. And then you add in like sound effects, people grunting and, you know, exertion. And the assassin character in this movie, like never makes a sound, is silent, jumping and fight. Like she's fighting and other people are are, uh, uh, making noises and she's just so quiet. And there's something really kind of powerful about that the way that she's so still and calm and i mean i guess in a certain sense the movie as a whole is almost like an an expression of that attitude about the world but that has strengths and it has weaknesses to me yeah and one of like again in retrospect one of the most powerful moments is this sequence in which uh her mother tells her this story about this piece of jade mm-hmm. and about the princess that is essentially an apology from this woman who died while she was away. And it's her talking and then it cuts to Yin Yang, like sitting quietly looking forward. And then it cuts to her talking again and it cuts to Yin Yang with her face like buried in this cloth so that you can't see her crying. Right. And I don't, I mean, it's something that's loaded in the beginning of the movie so that I don't think you understand like, like basically it's like the one time we see her like crack, a crack in her facade but we don't understand the power of that because it's not until later as the movie goes on that we kind of see her as she fully is yeah. to other people. Yeah. I mean, I, I think other people have said this, but it's I, it's certainly something I felt, too, is that the movie is so beautiful that it almost – and it's hard to watch at home. Like, it would be better as, like, a museum piece or something. You know, like, if you could project certain scenes or even just still images on a wall – that it would, and you could just stand and appreciate just the incredible beauty of these images. But again, we're talking about a martial arts movie. That's the other thing that makes it so interesting is that martial arts is about movement, and here we're talking about stillness. And you know, it's it's again, it's an interesting dichotomy that the that the movie is doing something so unique. But it is the word you used before that I agree with. Is it, at times it's very frustrating. I think the one last thing I will say is that it. It does something – it does put martial arts in this context that I've seen people describe as realistic, which I do not think is the case. I don't feel that way Especially when, like – The fight scenes are are, not realistic. Yeah, they involve wires. Absolutely. But I think that what what people are trying to get at with that description is that martial arts are used in a very practical sense. Like, they are used – she's an assassin who, like, is very efficient. Right. None of the the martial arts are set up in a way to please the audience with, like, grand extended fight sequences, you know, that go on forever. They're all – as much as, like, you know, wire work – it's uh, not a martial- showy sort of a thing. Exactly. It's it's if 
it it treats it as if you were within this world and you would want to most efficiently as possible to kill someone and what that would look like and it wouldn't necessarily look like an audience pleasing thing yeah but that means that the audience, the audience remains unpleased. unpleased. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, that is The Assassin. You can find it on Netflix. We're just going to dive right into our picks here. We'll we'll let the general thoughts about martial arts movies kind of come out of our recommendations here. The nice part about this, uh, while I don't necessarily think that The Assassin is the ideal movie to watch on Netflix for the reasons we described, there are a lot of martial arts movies on Netflix, on Hulu, on Amazon. If this is a genre you, you like... You're, you can really go to town. There are so many available. I don't really know why. Maybe just the libraries are available for purchase or for rent for these companies because there are a lot. Like if you just go – even and, and not just like, oh, here's a random little movie no one's ever heard of. Like the heavy hitters of this genre in terms of the actors, the directors, they're well represented on the major platforms, which is nice because a lot of times we pick a genre or a director or an actor we want to talk about, and then we look on Netflix and – Okay, there's no movies available. This is that's not the case here. So, with all of these movies to choose from, Allison, what what did you choose as your first pick? Well, I went for a movie that is streaming on Fandor, which is a smaller streaming site. Okay, but worth going to Fandor for this, which is Master of the Flying Guillotine. This would be the 1976 film written, directed by, and starring Jimmy Wong Yu, who was one of the first kung fu film stars before, and he kind of got eclipsed by Bruce Lee eventually. The film is a sequel to a film in which Wang first played uh, the character of the one-armed boxer. It's called The One-Armed Boxer. Which is Clever itself, title. Yeah, which is itself sort of a knockoff of an earlier character he played, the one-armed swordsman. Uh, he <laughs> was really good at doing martial arts with one of his arms strapped behind his back. Mm-hmm. Um, so Master of the Flying Guillotine combines two classic kung fu movie-like plots. Uh, there's the revenge story, in which the heavily bearded and eyebrowed martial artist of the title tracks down the one-armed boxer uh, to take his revenge for the killing of two of his students. And then you have, you know, your standard martial arts tournament in which fighters come from all over to prove their skill with an alarmingly high body count. Um, And in addition to the weapon of the title, which is this very deadly flying hat on a chain, basically, (laughs) it is like the it is very impractical, a terribly unconvincing super weapon. Yes. Um, It it has like blades on the outside and has blades on the inside. So if you manage to land it on someone's head, if by chance you can can... like and then pop it off easily. Yeah. (laughs) But it's apparently if you're a master of the flying guillotine, then you have no trouble doing this, landing this hat on people's heads. Yeah. But there are also fighters from different countries represented in hilariously broad stereotypes, most notably a a yoga master from India who, in the greatest Street Fighter II fashion, Mm -hmm. can elongate his limbs Mm. to fights. It is tasteless, surreal, and fantastically (laughs) enjoyable. It's like... It, it it makes so little attempt to do anything other than just deliver the goods in terms of like elaborate fight scenes with different different types of martial arts and also different types of characters. Um, I mean, the one arm boxer is 
has like no qualities other than being a really good fighter and like the head of a school. He has no personality at all that he, you can speak of. Um, and and all he does, he's just there to uh, not fight in the tournament because he's above such things, but watch it. And then eventually to uh, to take up arms against uh, against the Master of the Flying Guillotine, at which point all of the foreign fighters at the tournament tell, tell the one-armed boxer that they're going to take this time to fight him. And so he has to fight his way through past all of them as well. Uh, it's it's a really enjoyable movie, and uh, if you it, Jimmy Wong Yu actually uh, is I think kind of an undersung these days, an underappreciated figure yeah. in martial arts. Sort movies. of forgotten. Yeah, um, the Man from Hong Kong is another movie he shot that was uh, shot in Australia. It has Sammo Hung, this great opening scene with like oh, Sammo yeah. Hung. Oh, right. Yes, on Ayers Rock, uh, which you can't. It's Brian Trenchard Smith. Yeah, you can't go yeah, on Yeah, that movie anymore. is awesome. That movie is, is, is great. Uh, and, you know, I think that uh, it's it's worth taking a look at his work because, um, you know, he's not a household name anymore, but no. he was a huge star. Worked on a lot of Shaw Brothers films and then went, I mean, this movie was shot in Taiwan, where he's from, and that, you know, he kind of uh, broke with the Shaw Brothers and ended up doing going his own way. And, like, this is a movie he directed. And there's really nothing better than watching him fight a guy who can, like, make his arms super long. <laughs> <laughs> and then they suddenly, the camera, like, retreats to, like, 100 feet away. So to appreciate the... To appreciate it and also to make sure that the effects can't be seen, like, too up close. Of but course. But it's, it's really terrific. Mm-hmm. That is Master of the Flying Guillotine. It is on Fandor. That's a delightful film. Uh, I picked also, from that same, same period, uh, an archetypal martial arts movie for my first pick from the... Shaw Brothers studio. Was your movie a Shaw Brothers movie? No, uh, Jimmy Wang Yu has made Shaw Brothers movies. Right, but then he went off on his own. Yeah, so this is a Shaw Brothers movie. That shield, that SB shield, is kind of almost, to me at least, when I was a kid, like synonymous with these great kung fu movies of the 1970s. And my pick is the uh, movie that spawned a franchise. It also inspired a hip-hop group to name their album. This is the 36th Chamber of Shaolin from 1978. It's directed by Lu Chi Lang. It's available on Hulu, and it stars Gordon Liu. He plays a man whose school and this sort of rebellion that's kind of based out of the school is crushed by the corrupt Manchu government. He escapes. He then flees to the Shaolin Temple. He's taken in for training. And at this temple, there are 35 different chambers to learn, like sort of aspects, different techniques and skills. And we don't really learn what the 36th chamber is until very late in the movie. I won't spoil it. But, uh, of course, Gordon Liu's character is sort of like gifted, incredibly gifted, like uniquely talented. He moves quickly through the school so that – he can then be kind of expelled to then, you know, get his revenge. Again, it's a revenge story, essentially. The The training at the temple, though, it takes up a lot of the movie. And it kind of reminds me, and I suspect was an inspiration for kind of like the Karate Kid. Because not all of the training seems practical. It's the kind of thing where you're like, okay, like running, a cl- uh, like running across this pond and stepping on logs. I don't see necessarily right away how it helps me in a fight, but then... Then you sort of get eventually, oh, I see. It's about training these different aspects of your body and your mind and focus. And it's not just about punching and kicking, of course. It's sort of the 
you know, that's sort of the idea. I will warn uh, listeners that the soundtrack on Hulu's copy is horrible. It is a very stereotypical bad kung fu movie dub. A lot of like, hey, hey you, and that sort of thing. And people going, ha, huh, huh, and it's not, there's no subtitles. And unfortunately, you can't turn off the dubbing and put on the original Chinese track, which is unfortunate. The good news is the movie looks really good. It's a very clean print. Like I remember watching this movie on VHS in high school and the movie looking like garbage, sounding like garbage and looking like garbage. At least now the version you can see on Hulu looks really good. It's cleaned up. It's a pristine print. So you can appreciate the visuals. It's not ideal in the sense that you can't watch the original soundtrack. But you make do. The colors really pop. It's a beautiful movie. Uh, Gordon Liu has incredible charisma, is a real a real badass, and I love watching him, like, uh, sort of the training, carrying carrying water buckets up an incline while he has these, like, knives strapped to his arms so he can't put his arms down and headbutting, like uh, – it's kind of like watching American Gladiators as a movie because there's all these ridiculous sort of tasks you have to accomplish and, it, of course, turns you into a fighting master. It's a, it's a great film. And it actually looks really good. Not quite as lush as The Assassin, but really, really beautiful. The colors are just incredible. So that's the 36th Chamber of Shaolin, and that is available on Hulu. All right. For my second pick, I went with a movie that is not a traditional uh, a tra- traditional martial arts movie. Okay. It is a spoof, but it is also, I think, in spirit, kind of a wonderful kung fu film. It is Kung Fu Hustle which is available for rent now. Mm-hmm. So, Matt, I cry at weird things in movies. I cried at the climactic moment of Speed Racer. <laughs> okay. We talked about that on yeah. the podcast. Yeah. I cry at the beginning of The Lion King, Circle of Life. That doesn't do it for me. I cried uh, during the final montage in the Spelling Bee documentary, Spellbound. That I can see for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I cried weird. during Kung Fu Hustle. Oh, wow. Uh, yes. Most specifically in the moments in which at first a laborer and a tailor and a baker and then a chain smoking landlady and her Lothario husband reveal themselves to be Kung Fu masters. Uh, Stephen Chow, who directed the movie and stars in it. You know, is more of a comedian and a spoofster than he is a martial arts guy. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition to real martial artistry, this movie also uses a lot of CGI um, to kind of enable this broad reference, heavy homage to kung fu flicks. But it treats kung fu mythology in a way that I feel the best superhero movies use mm. superpowers as a sort of extension of or enhancement of who the characters already are. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it. It imagines in this, I think, kind of moving way, the, the way this the regular overcrowded slum is home to these larger than life figures, like these neighbors who are just these regular people are, in fact, these great talents that, mm-hmm. that come to, you know, that emerge when this place is threatened. And I love no character more than the landlady, uh, who is played by Yen Shi who was a stunt woman in the 60s and 70s in Hong Kong and then hadn't worked for like two decades when Mm. she took up the role of the landlady. And I love the way in which this movie takes this woman who is perpetually in hair curlers, perpetually chain smoking, and who is is incredibly loud Haridan, this incredibly loud Haridan, uh, and then turns turns this into a superpower, really. The lion's roar when she is able to let out this scream that is such that it like... It, it like will knock down everything in its path. I think that there is something really magnificent about that in this movie. Uh, and then in the way 
it doesn't it isn't just uh, a comedy uh, at the expense of or about kung fu which i'd say shaolin soccer stephen chow's earlier film is i think this is also a movie that kind of reappropriates this this is a slightly musty mythology as uh, as this tool of kind of I don't know of like empowerment for empowerment for these characters who are who are just like otherwise your basic like uh, crowded apartment dwellers uh, in Hong Kong mm-hmm. and I I really love that uh, so that is Kung Fu Hustle and it is available for rent. That's another excellent pick. All of these movies are fun, man. These are so fun. I really enjoyed. Yeah, these like, are, these are all great. Looking around for picks for this. Yeah, I decided for my last pick. I really wanted to wax rhapsodic for a minute about Jackie Chan, who was a big part for me of 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 growing up in the 90s and one of the things that I, I think you I would argue are was objectively better about movie going at that time was that there was a period where Jackie Chan became a pretty bankable movie star and not only was he making movies in America but they were releasing his Asian movies here and which now never happens anymore unfortunately no. at least not wide not wide release and it was it was fantastic because every year or two you would get or maybe more frequently than that at sometimes you would get a new Jackie Chan movie in theaters and like 36 Chamber of Shaolin sometimes the dubbing was kind of atrocious uh but it was way better than watching it at home watching it on crappy bootlegs cuz a lot of these movies uh weren't even released on you know like traditionally you had to kind of find them somehow if you could you know if you had a connection you could get copies of the VHS tapes sometimes but uh it was it was great now Netflix has again a really good selection of Jackie Chan movies including a lot of the ones that were released in American theaters and I think that's how they have them I think they're like Miramax or Dimension Films like their library of titles they've sold them to Netflix so they have Super Cop which is technically Police Story 3 they have Operation Condor which is technically Armor of God 2 and they have my favorite of all of them which is The Legend of Drunken Master which is technically Drunken Master 2 uh it's Drunken Master 2, but it's really more of a spiritual sequel or or even like a reboot than a direct follow-up. Like the good comparison I think to make here would be like Evil Dead 2 is to Evil Dead as Drunken Master 2 is to Drunken Master 1. Kind of a reimagining of the previous movie, of the of the premise. It's bigger, it's more technically impressive, and you don't have to really have seen the original movie. And it's basically better than the original in every way. There is a story, but I don't think there's any point in explaining it. There's never a point in explaining, really, any of Jackie Chan's movies. It's all about Jackie Chan himself, his charisma, his stunt work, his charm, his humor. And I think Drunken Master was the ultimate expression of him. You know, his fighting style in general in all of his movies is more comical than, you know, a Bruce Lee or a Jet Li. Um, You know, he's not so much a fighter as he is just someone who gets caught in fight scenes and he's just struggling to survive however he can he is running away he's jumping he's using props very famously he always incorporates the environment into his fight scenes it's not just two guys standing around trading blows he's always finding things to incorporate into the fights which always makes his movies endlessly fun because each one is different in that way and what's great about drunken master 2 is it's not a euphemism drunken master or drunken boxing like he actually – his character has to get drunk to fight or at least to fight more effectively. If he gets too drunk, he gets less effective. But there, there's a uh, – there's an ideal level of drunkenness. As in life in drunken boxing, there's a, there's a peak where you hit where if you go past it, 
you've passed the point of no return. It's not unlike how I am with playing pool. Right, exactly. Yes. That's that's very fair. Uh, so, you know, Jackie Chan in this film, not only does he have these fight scenes that are exciting, but also really funny because he gets to act drunk. So it's like there, it's like the perfect expression of his filmmaking style because he's they're both really exciting but also really funny in this case. And again, this is not, describing the pleasures of it is pointless. You just have to watch them. You know, it's it, there's no reason to there's nothing I could say that would explain the pleasure here. You just have to experience it. And uh, Jackie Chan is still making movies. He's retired, I feel like, a couple of times now, but they never seem to take. Um, and Netflix has some of his recent movies, and I've seen some of them, and some of them are very solid. But, you know, and I'm advocating you watch these movies on Netflix, but I do miss the time when Jackie Chan movies and other martial arts movies, it wasn't just Jackie Chan movies, martial arts movies in general were considered enough of an event, enough of a thing to get a theatrical release of some substance of some size you know like nowadays it seems like they're just sort of considered like disposable stuff throw it on streaming and it's great that they're available but i don't know i miss the days when these movies were considered at least a little bit more closer to art you know like not just the assassin which is demonstrably an art film but like jackie chan movies to me are great and deserve more attention and they're great to see on a big screen. I feel like the last movie of any kind like this that got the that kind of release was like The Raid and to some extent The Raid 2. Sure. I I, I happen to see Ip Man 3 which actually will be available for rent soon and mm -hmm. which I would definitely suggest you check out and the other two Ip Man movies are streaming Super on fun. and are worth checking yep. out. And it was the first time I think I had seen a martial arts movie since probably The Raid. And it was such a pleasure and not just because Mike Tyson is in that movie and has a fight scene. Wow. It's incredible. <laughs> I mean, it's like, hey, it's always better to see it at all than to not see it. Like streaming, that the fact that they're available on streaming is wonderful. But it's just a bummer because I used to look forward to every one of those Jackie Chan movies. First Strike, Super Cop, Rumble in the Bronx. Oh, my God, Rumble in the Bronx blew my mind when that came out when I was, like, 14. And it's just, you know, it's great that they're available, but I don't know. Seeing them on the big screen was was special. Well, because also, and, you know, I don't think we've ever, we've mentioned this, in, and it's an obvious point, but, uh, it, you know, like dance, these are, the, like, movies that are about, like, like that star martial artists showcase like movement and right. the body and like the kind of magnificent things that a, a highly trained person is capable of. Absolutely. And I mean, there's something that films are ideally suited to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you can enjoy it on your home television, but it's just not quite the same as seeing it way big. That's the way to go. But you know, Hey, it's, I'm glad they're available. I'm glad so many of these movies you can watch at home, including my favorite, uh, Drunken Master 2, AKA the legend of Drunken Master, which is streaming on Netflix. Before we get to Behind the Eight Ball, before we get to Sing and Roll More's Completely Good Sites Until like New Release Roundup, we actually have a prize to give away. We haven't done this in a long time. We have a copy, a hardcover copy of A.O. Scott's book. Of course, I mentioned A.O. Scott a couple of segments ago, his, uh, his review of The Assassin. He's, of course, the New York Times film critic, fabulous film critic. He has a new book, came out a month or two ago. It's called Better Living Through Criticism. It is about film criticism and criticism in general and why critics are important. And uh, we have a copy of it that we are going to give away. So here's how we're going to do this. If you would like this copy, we have one copy. We are going to give it away randomly to anyone 
who leaves us a positive review because we're shameless let's be honest yes we need your love yes on itunes which of course itunes reviews helpful in reaching new listeners and whatnot so if uh you go to you go to itunes you leave us a positive review we five stars hopefully but i'll leave that to you well four stars is acceptable if you have we'll take uh, you know constructive criticism it doesn't have to be a blind rave we'll be fair about it uh but anytime between you, the you know now when we're recording this which is on april 10th so by the time you hear this, April 11th or 12th, and April 24th, which is probably when we'll be recording our next episode. So you have about two weeks-ish. Again, go to iTunes, leave us a review, give us five stars, and uh, we will just collect all of the reviews from that time period, and one random winner will just, we'll just pick it at random. Now, the last time we did something like this, we had a couple of people who said, hey, I already left you a positive review I can't give you another. iTunes, I guess, only lets you leave one review per podcast. So here's what we suggest. If you've given us a review, if you entered the contest the previous time, let's let's be real here. You know someone in your life who has a, a relative, a loved one, a friend who maybe doesn't listen to the podcast, maybe does, but just has never left a review. Just tell them, hey, do me a favor. This will take 30 seconds of your life and have them do it. Now, if you can prove to me via email after you win or after this associate of yours wins that not only did they enter this but you have left a review in the past i will throw in a second prize i'm not going to tell you what it is but we have we have other prizes here that we're going to probably give away on future episodes so we're going to throw in a second prize so that's your reward if you can convince someone in your life that uh, a loved one a spouse a friend a child i don't care who it is so you got to know someone everyone has an itunes account now And if you can prove after the fact that this winner was doing this on your behalf and you have left a previous review, we will give you a second prize. So good luck. Uh, We only have one prize, one one copy, but uh, it's a good one. It's a good prize. Yeah, Uh, yeah, I I haven't finished the book, but I've started it, and it's a really good book. I'm a big fan of A.O. Scott's criticism. So, uh, yeah, good luck until April 24th. That's the deadline to enter. All right, let's move on now to uh, the discussion of new releases. We're in a bit of a weird situation here where Allison has seen one movie and I haven't, and then I've seen one that she hasn't. So we're just going to kind of briefly go through these. Allison, your movie is? It is The Jungle Book, the new one of two upcoming versions of The Jungle Book. Uh, Although I believe the second was pushed back, was right? Yeah, yeah, I know that Like that's not, in, in any way, it's not coming for a while, if it's coming at all. Yeah, supposedly it's now 2018. I suspect we may never see it. Yeah, I don't know. Also, like, watching this, which is a very, like, beautifully produced one, uh, directed by Jon Favreau, starring Neil Seti, who's like a kind of newcomer as Mowgli, uh, and then Mowgli, and then uh, voice cast and Bill Murray, Bill Murray, right? and Ben Kingsley, and Idris Elba, and Scarlett Johansson. Uh, it's it's very lavishly done, but also watching it, I'm like, the Jungle Book is like a tough is tough material to pull off. Yeah. and I feel like this version falls kind of into this uncanny valley, in which you know there are these computer generated animals that talk, right? Um, like their mouths move, and it it falls into this weird spot of being like maybe a little too realistic for a Mm. kind of fable and then you know and yet sometimes being like a little too scary for a kid's movie especially with king louis the king of the monkeys who is voiced by your favorite christopher walken nice he when he starts talking it's hilarious because it's christopher walken and then he leans out of the shadows and he's this like 
15 foot tall orangutan who at a certain point chases Mowgli through his like palace. And it's a kind of intense sequence. Mm. Like it's, you know, John Favreau is someone who has directed big action movies. Um, And it's, it's the kind of thing that I think would have like scared the hell out of me as a kid. Um, But then I don't know at a certain point if you're older and are into a scene in which a giant monkey chases a kid through this like crumbling palace that you might be a little bored by a talking mm. animal movie. Um, Interesting. So, I mean, you, cause you always sort of assume like the ideal audience for a jungle book movie is like, you know, the Mowgli character's age. Like that's, you would think, but you're saying that seems, you, you think it might be a little too intense for I, kids I of that age. I do think so. Especially, and then Shere Khan, you know, this giant tiger right. is, is like, it's I know I've seen the trailer figure. and it, that is, it's a curious because I was surprised that they went so they seem almost like photorealistic yes you know which it can be impressive but it's like it's a movie about like they sing the bare necessities right they sing two songs okay King Louis sings his song about like I want to be like you right, right? Ooh, ooh, ooh. Uh, thank and you. then thank you and uh, yes the, the bare necessities but it's not it's not a remake of of the Disney animated version. Okay. You know, it is. But it just seems like a thought. strange mix because it's like they, they felt maybe obligated or not, but they, they threw in a couple of the famous right. songs. It's a it's a Disney movie. Right. It's right. a Disney movie. The animals talk. Right. And at the same time, but they also almost, look there very are times real. when it feels like a gritty remake of The Jungle Book, which is an odd, odd thing way to, to go. think about. Yeah. All right. I don't think it entirely works. I'm seeing it. Uh, by the time people hear this, I'll have seen it, but I haven't seen it yet. So I don't know. I've heard some good things about it. It seems like the reviews have been positive. Yeah. It seems like you were more not, mixed. Yeah. I'm very mixed. Yeah. Um, uh, but I, I missed out on the movie that you're going to talk about because yes. I've, I've had a cold this week. Uh-huh. Uh, it is a movie that people have not been mixed on. I'm not it, mixed. But it has. It's performed, once again, pretty well at the box office. Yeah, people uh, like Melissa McCarthy. And I like Melissa McCarthy. So I'm not surprised that the movie did well. I'll be curious to see if you know anyone shows up after a second week after people see it, whether they encourage people to go because... Oh boy, I thought this was a real a real mess. And uh, it's the boss. This is the latest Melissa McCarthy vehicle. She plays this. It's it's a very strange figure because she she's a character. I guess she created back in her days in the Groundlings. This like you know sketch comedy troupe in L.A. that she was a part of. That a lot of great comedians have been a part of. And like the character's a very strong look. You know this hair. And the the turtlenecks, she's always wearing these very high turtlenecks. She's got a very, like, well-defined look. And the character has, beyond that, has, like, almost no definition. She's, a like, a businesswoman with quotes. Like, we don't really know what she does. Uh, she has a backstory that involves her being, like, an orphan who was, a ba- like, repeatedly returned to the orphanage for... We don't really know what. I guess she's just really mean and obnoxious, which is true. She is, you know, as a lot of Melissa McCarthy characters are. Um, but for whatever reason, she was returned repeatedly to the orphanage. So she kind of grew up with this attitude of, you know, I you know, don't uh, look to family. Don't let anyone drag you down because that's what people do. They drag you down. Believe in the power of yourself. Um, she gives these kind of these self-help lectures, but are also like like T-Pain shows up to do like a, a, like to sing and she dances. And I don't know. It's a mess. It's a total mess. And it's I did not find it very funny at all. I mean, that's the thing. Like you, you look at it, and you go, "Well, this doesn't look all that promising." But I love Melissa McCarthy, so hopefully it'll be really funny. And mostly, I just it just felt to me really like 
they like the script had no jokes, actual jokes written in it, and they just sort of went into scenes where they're like, okay, now in this scene, you make fun of Kristen Bell for wearing a really lame, saggy bra. And that's like a 10-minute scene. And there's like a 10-minute scene where she's um has like whitening treatments, so she has these like things in her mouth to like hold her lips out, and the whole joke is like she does the whole scene like like and that scene goes on for 10 minutes also and it's just like there's no jokes there's no material and she co-wrote the movie with uh, the director ben falcone who's her husband and this is the second movie they made together after tammy and i I, I don't know if he's i'm sure he's a wonderful man but the movies he's making with her i just find a big step down in quality from the ones she makes with like Paul Feig, who seems to have a much better handle on utilizing her talents and giving her material to work with. I found Tammy a really conflicting movie mm. in that it, it it features her at some of her most abrasive. Right. And yet it's also, I think the first movie she's been in that gave her an actual on the level love interest. Okay. That was not played for comedy like uh-huh. mark duplass played a legit love interest for her right. who was into her who like you know that was cute and right. I, I there was something about that where it really invites you to read into it like what are the aspects about her that both she and her husband think are her strong you know like what does she want that she's not getting from other people's projects right for her you know right and i do think that there's almost this like in tammy at least there was almost this weird like okay you can get the like brash, loud comedy, and then also we're gonna have this sweet romance on the side. But I don't, I don't. This movie doesn't sound like it has anything. It has, she has zero anything. romance. The, the love interest in this movie is with Kristen Bell, and that goes nowhere. It's a complete waste of time. It's just, it's just tacked on. I mean, Melissa McCarthy's character is very abrasive in this movie, but there's nothing else to her than that. I mean, you know from that first scene with the orphanage stuff, you go, okay, well I know what's gonna happen. She's gonna have to learn a lesson about family and blah blah blah, which she does basically at the like the flip of a switch drop of a hat when the narrative demands it otherwise she's just really mean and obnoxious the whole time and it's not even like i don't know i guess if you really like watching her insult people including peter dinklage doing a really weird broad character who is like her ex who's also her rival who um is really to samurai swords so at the end of the movie they fight with samurai swords Huh. It's it's again. It's just really. It's just dire. There were there was long stretches. I laughed like one time, and there was just long stretches where I was just like, hey, "This is just really desperate." And it's just and it feels some scenes feel so long, and then other scenes like again, like I don't really understand how she became such a huge mogul and what she sells besides self help advice. And then her entire she goes to jail for like insider trading and apparently loses her entire business and all of her money. And comes out completely bankrupt, has nowhere to live, and winds up like living on with Kristen Bell and her daughter because she has nowhere else to go and has to start from square one. And it, it's just it like it doesn't make any sense, and it's it's bad. I did not like this movie. The boss, not good. All right, let's wrap things up with behind the eight ball. We wrap things up with uh, some new releases that are new to streaming. We give you some listener recommendations sent in by you guys. And then we each have one film chosen blindly by number from our my lists. Allison, do you want me to go first or you want to go first? I want to go first. Oh, fine. Well, uh, go first then. Give us some new releases. All right, I will. 
First up is Nasty Baby, which is new to Amazon Prime, uh, written and directed by Sebastian Silva, who also stars in the film, alongside Tunde Adebimpe from the band TV on the radio. Uh, the two of them play a gay couple living in Fort Greene in Brooklyn. Uh, Silva's character is an artist, and his best friend, played by Kristen Wiig, has been enlisted to be their surrogate as they try to get pregnant. And it becomes this very unpredictable story that combines... Uh, they're ramping up and think, uh, the main character thinking about fatherhood with this story about gentrification and this maybe mentally ill man on the block who keeps harassing Silva's character and Kristen Wiig's character and eventually this all comes to a head. Um, it's, it's, if not the most entirely coherent as a whole movie, it's one that takes some very interesting directions uh, that are worth a look. Nasty Baby on Amazon Prime. New to Netflix is Breathe. This is the second film to be directed by Melanie Laurent, the actress, um, about a French teenage girl living in the suburbs who befriends the new girl in school who says she recently moved from Nigeria where her mother does aid work. She seems very sophisticated and kind of like socially free. And it be, they have a very close friendship that turns into a frenemyship uh, that I think is a very smart take on basically like teen girl friendships I, I think it does jump the shark at the end but before then it's it's really well done uh, and I, I think that Laurent has an interesting career ahead of her as a director and finally new to Hulu is a tv show that I've heard many many good things about and I'm really looking forward to diving into my mad fat diary this acclaimed British comedy drama set in the mid 90s uh, about a 16 year old girl who is overweight and who has just spent four months in a psychiatric hospital and is trying to reconnect with a, her best friend who doesn't know where she's been, who thinks she's been in France for four months. And uh, as, as this main character tries to put her life together, Sharon Rooney, who plays the main character, has gotten a lot of acclaim for this. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that. That's my Mad Fat Diary on Hulu. Okay. How about two listener recommendations? Uh, first up, we have a listener recommendation from Ryan in Denton, Texas, who writes, I'm a few episodes behind, so I'm not sure if this has come up yet, but I wanted to put in a good word for Louis C.K.'s Horace and Pete. The show just wrapped up its 10th and final episode this weekend. That saying out loud uh, that the 10th episode is the final episode feels like a spoiler is an indication of just how good and different Horace and Pete is. It constantly kept me on my toes about what direction it would take and what events might transpire. Whether it's an episode opening with a 10-minute monologue shot entirely in close-up or one-off guest appearances that knock you on your ass with how powerful they are, the show is just amazing. It also happens to feature CK's finest acting, in particular in the last episode. I've never seen him turn in a performance like that before. He's always been a little like Seinfeld to me, kind of half acting, half visibly enjoying the performances of his co-stars. CK loses himself in this performance. I was completely absorbed. At times watching the show, I found myself devastated, amused, elated, and emotionally wrecked. It's truly something special. Thank you for that, Ryan. It's a show we actually we offered up when it it first uh, it first premiered the yeah. first episode or two premiered as a possible listener's choice pick. Um, it didn't win, no. And it's one that I haven't had a chance to look at yet, but I've heard really good things about. I know um, some of it, like, especially as it's gone along, I've seen some people say it's just incredible. So and it's really great to hear that. And I am definitely going to take a look. Um, so that is Horace and Pete. It is available on Louis C.K.'s site. And the second listener recommendation is from Eric in St. Louis, who writes, I just finished watching an extremely unique film from New Zealand called Housebound. 
This movie starts as a crime film, morphs into a ghost story, and twists and turns its way through genres in unexpected ways to a satisfying conclusion that you won't see coming. Throughout it all, the film, which concerns a young lady that is confined to house arrest at her mother's house after a hilariously bungled ATM robbery. Um, the initial twist is that the house she is confined to may or may not be haunted. The film displays a very knowing sense of humor, which never stops it from being scary when it needs to be. Quite an entertaining little film and a director to watch. Um, and I am also very fond of Housebound. It's, it's a very good mix of horror and comedy. Um, definitely worth a look. That is streaming on Netflix. Okay, and one film blindly chosen by number from your my list. You gave me number four. That is The Hallow, um, the Irish horror film. Here's a description. A family who moved into a remote mill house in Ireland finds themselves in a fight for survival with demonic creatures living in the woods. Into mill house? Oh, a mill house. I see. Writer-director Corin Hardy was the latest director to get attached to and then exit the long-in-the-works remake of The Crow. Um, but I've heard a lot of good things about this movie, especially as like a kind of creature feature. Um, so it's one I didn't get to see when it was in theaters. And now it is on Netflix. And eventually I will watch it. Remember Alf? He's back in pog form. Are you ready, Matt? Yes. Okay, three new releases. All right, first up, another in the ongoing and excellent ESPN documentary series, 30 for 30. Would you care to guess, Allison, how many 30 for 30 episodes are currently available on Netflix? 30? Oh, you're way off. 67! Wow. I can't believe there are that many, but uh, my math might be off. But I counted, and uh, 67. Uh you know, read some articles recently about how Netflix's selection of movies is kind of contracting, and they're uh, pretty soon we may reach a point where the entire Netflix library is just thirty for thirty Their documentaries and thirty for thirty documentaries. Basically, yeah. You should note the um, the new OJ documentary, the five hour plus yeah. one, is also a thirty for thirty. Isn't yes, it? yes, yeah. it is, and is considered the some people it's supposed like, to be amazing, great achievement of the thirty for thirty series. Well, that's saying something because they made a lot of good documentaries, including this one that I'm going to recommend, which is called Fantastic Lies. It's about the Duke Lacrosse scandal. Uh, that involved several men on the, you know, the from Duke University, the team. They were accused of raping a woman at a team party, and while the the men of the team were definitely guilty of poor judgment and saying some really horrible things, they were innocent of the crimes they were charged of. And the documentary by Marina Zenovich explores all of the issues around the case, from outrage culture to white male privilege run amok. It's a really interesting watch. I, I just watched this one last week. It's really good. It's called Fantastic Lies, and that is available on Netflix. Next up, because I will use any excuse to recommend an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie on this segment, uh, we now have Maggie available on Hulu and on Amazon Prime. This is Schwarzenegger's recent horror genre. Uh, this is Schwarzenegger's recent horror drama. He plays a farmer whose daughter has been infected by a slow-acting zombie virus. And that's the, the key part, is that people get bitten, and they eventually turn into zombies, but it takes a while. And so Schwarzenegger is allowed to take his daughter home and sort of quarantine her there. And ultimately, it's about whether he can bring himself to kind of kill his daughter uh, when he has to, when she turns into a zombie. And that's the kind of 
interesting hook here if you are a Schwarzenegger aficionado is that this is a guy who's killed hundreds, maybe thousands of people on screen for his pleasure, for our pleasure, and now he can't really bring himself to kill one person. And I found that a very interesting sort of twist on his persona. So that's Maggie, available on Hulu and Amazon Prime. And finally, the only movie that matters this week, Allison, is Dead 7. It's a sci-fi original post-apocalyptic zombie western starring former members of various 90s boy bands. Uh, No, this is not a joke. This is real. The movie was written and stars Nick Carter from the Backstreet Boys. Uh, There are several other Backstreet Boys in it, plus also members of 98 Degrees, NSYNC, and Allison's favorite band of all time, O-Town. I do like O-Town. They were they were they the were subject from, of an MTV reality show. They were indeed. Uh, I know we are supposed to do listeners' choice, but I almost forced this to be a host choice. Uh, the problem is, you can watch it on Hulu, but you need to have a cable subscription to do so. So, for that reason, we decided, okay, we won't force you to watch it, but I encourage you to watch it, as I will soon be doing because I bet this movie is amazing. It is Dead Seven. And that is available on Hulu. But again, you need to have some sort of cable subscription login to be able to watch it. All right. Two listener recommendations. Our first comes from Ben in Oxford, Ohio. And he writes, Matt and Allison, I know you weren't big fans of the first season of Daredevil, but I would recommend checking out at least one story arc from the second season. The story has been basically broken up into three loosely connected story arcs. The first four episodes are the fight between Daredevil and the Punisher. Uh, but there's a great performance from John Barenthal, sort of replacing Vincent D'Onofrio as the villain. He's the Punisher. There's more cool fight scenes and a bunch of great cliffhanger endings. The middle arc, which takes four or five episodes, is the lightest and most fun. Uh, this is the part that's a legal drama and part out of sight, starring Daredevil and Elektra, with a few great cameos near the end of the story. The last few episodes fall apart a little bit, but it's definitely worth checking out and seeing how you feel about the changes. And that is from Ben in Oxford, Ohio. Allison, we did review the first season of Daredevil on SVU number 83. We weren't big fans. No, did you ever finish it? Nope. I didn't either. I actually have watched about two-thirds, I think. A half, maybe, of the second season. Okay. And? I, I think Elektra is great. I yeah. really like the arc that's uh, being discussed. Yeah. Um, Punisher? I still don't think... I don't think I get the Punisher. Okay. And I, I still think that in the end, this is just not the show for me. Yeah. But. I have heard people say that the second I, season is better than I the do, first season. I would season. say it is better. I haven't had a chance to watch any of it yet. Uh, I've been watching with what little time I've had. I've been watching something else right now. But I was probably going to at least try it. Um, I didn't finish the first season either. But actually, just yesterday, my dad, who watched the first season and got through the whole thing but didn't love it, said he thought the the new season was a lot better, too. So I'll, I'll check it out. Uh, thank you, Ben, from Oxford, Ohio, for that recommendation. And now we have a recommendation from Christopher in Lexington, Kentucky. He says, hello, SVU overlords. Uh, I just finished listening to this week's show, another great one, and wanted to write in with a recommendation of another road movie that is a bit off the beaten track from your typical road movie genre. The movie is Two for the Road, directed by Stanley Donnan and starring Audrey Hepburn and Albert Finney. And you can rent this on Amazon and Google Play and possibly other places as well. 
Hepburn and Finney play a couple who've been married for 12 years and are on a road trip through France to the Riviera on business. As they travel, they discuss their relationship, which leads quickly into a series of flashbacks of previous trips that the couple have made over the same terrain at different points in their relationship. The flashbacks are not really presented as flashbacks per se. The movie simply moves back and forth through time freely. It's this structural device that brought a lot of attention to the movie at the time for being kind of unusual and very different from a mainstream film. And what I think is great about this structure is that it is simply not used as a gimmick. Uh, Indeed, much of the power of the movie comes from what it has to say about comparing and contrasting two distinctly different points in a relationship. It is certainly not your light romantic comedy, even though it does have some of the trappings uh, of those sorts of films. I still think it has a lot to say about marriage and long-term relationships in general. Ultimately, I think it's an underseen and underappreciated film. That should be seen more because it offers an interesting and compelling look at what happens after Happily Ever After. That's all for now. Thanks, as always, for the great show. That's from Christopher in Lexington, Kentucky. And Two for the Road is a movie I've I've never seen. I've always heard that it's a really interesting movie for the reasons that Christopher talks about. The fact that it goes back and forth and jumps around in time and is an unusual sort of romantic comedy. Uh, So great recommendation. Thanks for that, Christopher. All right, and one from your my list. You gave me number 13, and this time that is The Quiet Man. This is the John Wayne, John Ford film. He plays a boxer who returns home to Ireland, and he falls for his neighbor. Uh, And that's, of course, the great Maureen O'Hara. And the reason it's on my my list, uh, it's a movie I've seen and love. And the reason that it's on here is because when she passed away last fall, I— either heard or noticed that it was on Netflix, and I thought, oh, I should rewatch The Quiet Man. It's been a while since I've seen it, so I put it on there. I haven't gotten around to rewatching it yet. It's a great movie. If you haven't seen it, it is not a Western, and it's not really your typical John Ford, John Wayne movie. It's kind of a comedy or a— It's a romantic comedy, It's a romantic comedy, really, with John Wayne. And that has, speaking of martial arts movies, an epic fight scene. A huge fight scene at the end of the movie, and John Wayne is fantastic in it, too. It's a really, really great movie. Put it on your my list. Watch it if you haven't seen it. The Quiet Man. Allison, we have a, a very eclectic batch, as we often do, for our our next listener's choice review. We've got three very different choices. There's one I am very curious about. Me too. You have that one, though. Oops. I'm actually curious about all of these. Well, the third one I'm in the middle of watching already. It's a, it's a TV show. The first one, though, is called Western. It's the new film from the Ross Brothers, who are really talented documentarians. And th- this is the plot description. For generations, all that distinguished Eagle Pass, Texas, from Piedras Negras, Mexico, was the Rio Grande. But when darkness descends upon these harmonious border towns, a cowboy and lawman face a new reality that threatens them. Their way of life and honestly i don't really know quite what that means but i love the ross brothers i, I think, think they're, they're great filmmakers some of the best documentarians working today yeah I, and they do something that's very different from your standard docs yeah, if you haven't seen their previous documentaries, four five three six five is incredible. It's so good. It's about just a little town. It's like a their hometown. It's their hometown, and it's it's kind of like a I don't know. It's almost like Altman esque as a documentary because it's like a survey of the town and all the different people in it. And then Chapatulis was another really great documentary they made. So I, I kind of shame. I'm ashamed that I haven't seen this new one yet. I'm excited that it's now on Netflix. And I'm really looking forward to watching it. That is Western. So that's option one, Western from the Ross Brothers on Netflix. Okay. Option two is the one that we've said we're both very curious about. Yes. 
It is a film called Look Who's Back, which is now on Netflix. It was a movie that actually Netflix acquired after it premiered in Germany in the fall and was a box office hit. It is a satirical film based on a best-selling novel about Adolf Hitler. Who's back, Allison? Who's back? He's the one. Hitler. Who is back, yes. If you had thought as a joke, you were going to be like, I wonder who's back. Maybe Hitler. Hitler is back. That is who is actually just, like, back. wakes in. up in present-day Germany, still Adolf Hitler, just happens to be now in, in modern-day Berlin, I think, uh, where he kind of stumbles out and stumbles his way into having a career as a brilliant comedian because people mistake his, his thing for a shtick. And uh, and he kind of becomes a celebrity again. Uh, there are also whole sequences that are apparently um, Borat-like. Find the actor who is playing Hitler, uh, you know, being put in situations with people who don't know that he is an actor uh, playing Hitler, or they don't they're not prepared for this being a movie. And directed by David Wentz, I hope that's how you say his name, um, who is uh, the director of Wetlands. Um, oh, so that yeah. Was- so I, you know, I have heard nothing about this movie until Netflix acquired it, but it certainly is a hell of a premise. It's got a premise. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that is your second choice. Okay. And then option three is a show that I've talked about on the podcast before, but we haven't had as a listener's choice option. And so now is your chance if you wanted us to talk about it. It is Bosch. Allison, I guess you're going to watch. I've seen all of it. Already. Oh, you've already seen the whole thing. Oh, yes. Okay. Okay, so I guess, I mean, season two is the most recent season, but we haven't really talked about the show. So we'll probably talk about season two specifically, but maybe also talk about the show in general. It stars Titus Welliver as Bosch, Harry Bosch, LAPD cop. It's based on a series of novels, a character who appears in a series of novels by Michael Connolly. Uh, It was developed for TV or Amazon, which is where you can watch it, by Eric Overmeyer, who was a producer and writer on Homicide, The Wire, and Treme. And besides Titus Welliver, has a bunch of actors. Actors you would recognize from those last two shows, including Jamie Hector, who is Bosch's partner, Lance Reddick, who's the deputy chief of the LAPD. And then in season two, you also have James Ransone. And then not from The Wire or from any of those other shows, you have Matthew Lillard, a character, of, an actor I was very surprised to see show up. Uh, I really like him in the show, too. I actually thought he's, uh, not to spoil if we discuss it, but I thought he was really good as well in what I've seen. I'm about three episodes in. Okay. I, I got a baby. I'm going very slowly. But I loved the first season, not to spoil things. But I really liked the first season a lot, so I was really excited. It got a second, and I've been working my way through it. The, the plot description of the second season is basically that – He's Harry Bosch. He's a cop, LAPD. Uh, There's a dead body found in the trunk of a car that seems to have mob connections. And Bosch gets the case that leads him to Las Vegas, where his ex-wife lives with his daughter. So, you know, it's uh, corruption, you know, Vegas. I don't know if we could talk about how if we I don't know if we've done LA Noir before, but Yeah, I don't think we have. It might be a good time to talk about some LA Noir. That would be a good town. Yeah. I'm not sure if there's enough movies of Michael Connolly books, but The Lincoln Lawyer was a a movie based on Michael Connolly a book, which I really (laughs) liked. But let's just devote the whole rest of the podcast to the Lincoln Lawyer. I would be fine with that. It's a really underrated movie. All right. Well, which of these movies or TV shows should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit? You tell us. Uh, You can send your pick to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com, or you can always enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, April 18th at noon. And after that, we'll announce the Twitter. 
after that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, which is at FilmSpottingSVU. And you'll have all that week to watch the film or the TV series. And then join us for our conversation on next week's episode, which will be on Tuesday, April 26th. FilmSpottingSVU.com is also where you can find our show archive. That is also where you can find a list of direct links to all the movies and TV shows we discuss on the show. Our Film Spotting SVU remixed theme song is by Vince Vandal. Listen to more of Vince's work at VinceVandal.Bandcamp.com. We'll be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the movie or TV review you pick. But in the meantime, you got to follow us on Twitter at Allison Wilmore, at Matt Singer. And, of course, follow the show at Filmspotting SVU. That's where we announce the winner of our Listener's Choice Review. That's where we share more streaming suggestions from ourselves and from you guys, the SVU listeners. And don't forget, every iTunes review that we get from now until April 24th will be entered randomly in that drawing to win a copy of Better Living Through Criticism. So make sure you give us a review. For Filmspotting SVU, I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.